Welcome to the College Connection Podcast, a podcast presented by the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador. This podcast is a series of regulatory-focused information and education sessions for RNs and NPs. This is the College Connection Podcast. My name is Brenda Carroll. I am the Director of Professional Conduct Review here at the College of Registered Nurses for Newfoundland and Labrador. I am a nurse by background, um, having experience mostly in pediatric critical care and some long-term care, um, but I'm also a lawyer and currently here at the college doing conduct reviews. So today we're going to look at um, the top 10 disciplinary type of complaints. I'm going to give you a little overview of the type of stuff that comes into this office. And then we're going to talk about some of the common ones. And really, more importantly than what's happening in my office, how you can avoid the pitfalls of, that some others have fallen into so that you're not on a piece of paper sitting on my desk. Um, so I'm going to turn off my video. Thank you. And then we're going to move forward with the um, presentation. So Peggy, my, there we go. Um, so just so you know, um, this year in 2022-2023, just our fiscal year, we have received 41 complaint forms. That's actually significantly lower than last year. We were closer to 60 or 70 last year. So less complaint forms coming to my office in the last fiscal, but I would say, and this is sort of, you know, a subjective assessment, the ones we are seeing are certainly a little bit more significant. Um, so of those 41 complaint forms that we've received, we have not withdrawn any. Occasionally we get things that get filed um, and then they don't they don't warrant any kind of proceeding. Um, we have no actual we call, we have a subcategory of complaints called reports. And this was the, these arose during the COVID um, pandemic when employers were putting people on leave. Um, without pay because they were not complying with the vaccination policies and because there was a change in someone's schedule they had an obligation to report that to us but we did not believe that that was guilty of conduct serving of sanctions so we just called them reports and we didn't take any action with them so there was no similar type of situation in the last fiscal year we did have one complaint form that went to our quality assurance track so our quality assurance track is where we get a complaint that I look at when it arrives into the office and realize that although it might not be ideal conduct for a nurse, it might not be the best or what we would hope our registrants would perform to, it wouldn't reach the level of conduct deserving of sanction. So for instance, if we have someone who's upset because someone was maybe rude to them, um, in the ER department or something, we might sort of track that over to quality assurance because there might be an opportunity for us to do some course correction with a registrant, but certainly that type of instance wouldn't ever amount to an allegation that would be conduct deserving of sanction that we think should hinder someone going forward. So we had one of those come in and that actually related to a social media post. So it was a complaint that came in from the public about something someone had posted to social media and it was, it, it, it wasn't 
explicitly clear that that was a problematic post, but we thought we took it as an opportunity to do some education with that registrant. So of the 40 remaining complaint forms that came in, um, all of those would have gone into what we call our professional conduct review stream. Um, 13 of those matters were resolved by alternative dispute resolution, which means we sent that complaint form out to our registrant and the registrant responded with, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, I realize that I misstepped. I 100% understand why what I did was inappropriate and I would like to rectify the situation. And what we do in those instances is we do a contract with the registrants that says, you know what, you're going to avail yourself of the following remediation and that can be education, it could be practice monitoring, it could be if there's drug and alcohol involved, it could be um, uh, going through some random screening for a period of time, various different things that we build into those contracts. And then the individuals go work their way through the terms of that contract. And when they complete all of the remediation, um, they usually write a reflective paper, meet with the practice consultant and the practice consultants then say, yeah, you know what? We believe this person has learned from their experience and uh, we send them on their way and wish them the best going forward in their practice. Um, 20 of those complaint forms went to our complaints authorization committee. So really what that means is we sent the complaint out to the registrant. The registrant responded with something less than, yes, I did it. And yes, I understand it was wrong. And the CAC committee then looks at the complaint and the registrant's response. And they kind of try and give us direction for what we should do for next steps. 10 of those uh, complaint forms that came in are somewhere in that early process still where we've got a complaint in and we've sent it out, we're waiting for a response, we're not really sure what we're going to get, so I don't know if it's going to fall in the ADR category or go to the complaints authorization committee. And I'm sure you're all doing the math and going, huh, 20 plus 10 plus 13 does not equal 40. And that's because three matters went to the CAC where we got less than that sort of complete acknowledgement and accountability. And the CAC said, mm, you know what, we still think you should try and do alternative dispute resolution. So that's why those numbers aren't uh, exactly adding up the way you might think. So of those matters that went to the complaints authorization committee, 20 of them, Four got sent to the investigation route. So four of them went out and we took a deeper dive with an investigator as to what exactly is going on here. We've got one version of the facts. We've got maybe a second version of the facts. There's things that aren't clear. So let's just take a deeper dive and find out what's going on. The investigator then takes that on, investigates all the relevant individuals and provides a report. And that report then goes back to that CAC committee for their review. The CAC of those 20 items took seven of them and dismissed them. So when we got a complaint and a response back, um, the CAC looked at both of those bits of information and said, you know what, we don't think this either occurred or we don't the, quite the way it's laid out to have by the complainant, or we don't believe the action involved relates to conduct, you know, amounts to conduct deserving of sanction. So for instance, um, it could be something that's outside the scope or mandate of the college. 
So sometimes we get people who complain and say, you know what, um, I work nights and my neighbor's really noisy during the day and he's a nurse. He should know from working shift work that I need to sleep and he's being disrespectful. And I think he's creating a safety issue in me because now I have to go operate heavy machinery at night. Well, the college would look at that and say, yeah, we're not getting involved in your neighborhood dispute. So we're just going to dismiss that. So we do get some like that. Um, Four matters got sent to hearing. So those four matters that got sent to hearing, that's where we have a dispute of facts or credibility. And um, we really think there's a significant issue here. And we need the disciplinary panel to actually hear a complete hearing on the matter. So that's those four. Three matters received caution and counsel. So sometimes these are a complaint comes in, the registrant responds, and the council says, yeah, we do think this could be conduct deserving of sanction, but there's really not much point to doing an investigation or going to a hearing. So for instance, it could be someone who has an unauthorized practice allegation for practicing without a license. And I filed that allegation. It goes out to the registrant and the registrant comes back and says, no, I didn't have a license because I didn't need one for that role for that job. Or I didn't need it then because I was still at home doing orientation from my kitchen. I wasn't actually seeing patients. So it's not unauthorized practice. Well, it actually is unauthorized practice. And that comes down to our policy and procedure. So in that instance, we wouldn't, there'd be no value going to a hearing because we already know the person says, yeah, I, I did what you're saying I did. I just don't think I needed a license. And we're, we know you do. And so there's no value in going to a hearing on that. So they would caution and counsel the registrant and say, we believe this is conduct deserving of sanction. And we're going to impose the following. In that instance, it's usually a fine. Or they can counsel people to do remedial education if it's appropriate. And then, like I say, there's three in that bucket that are pending that are sort of sitting, waiting to go to the CAC. Or they've been to the CAC once the CACs asked us to go back and, and, and tweak a few things or answer a few questions, not a few in, a full investigation, but just answer a few questions and come back to them. So those are the things we're dealing with. And who's complaining? I think this is always interesting to me is where those complaints come from. This is broken down into quarters. So the blue represents quarter one, the red is quarter two, green quarter three, and the the purple quarter four. So you can see that in quarter one, we were actually didn't have very many complaints. We had a little bit more in quarter two, we, things picked up in quarter three and quarter four, we've been flat out busy with complaints coming in the door left, right and center, to be honest with you. Um, and most of them come from the employers. So most of those are those things that are coming from professional practice. Um, so incidents being reported to them either from public or managers or others and that are investigated it by the employer and then reported to us. Another chunk of them come from me. Um, so these kind of complaints are things like those folks who failed to renew on time their license and worked without a license. They could be people who failed to remit their CCP documentation. Um, it also could be people who we tried to do one of those ADR contracts with who maybe hasn't stuck to it, hasn't completed it, hasn't completed it or has ignored it and not done anything with it. So then I 
have the discretion under the act to file allegations against registrants for those reasons. The interesting thing about this year is this bucket, the public. Usually this bucket looks like this. I might get one or two uh, complaints from the public generally a year. We have over a half a dozen complaints from the public in the last fiscal year. Um, so that's just an interesting blip, I guess. And maybe, you know, we've talked a lot about that maybe the public sympathy for nurses that was at a height during COVID has waned. Um, of course, whenever there's any group in the media seeking bargaining and negotiations and new contracts and pay increases, people get, you know, sort of hold you a little bit more accountable maybe and say, well, you're asking for more money than I expect perfect performance. Not really sure really what's contributing to this, but we, just so you're aware, the public is highly engaged in a way that they haven't been in the past. So, um, and then this little, this little bucket over on the far uh, right of the screen are other healthcare professionals. So this would be um, your colleagues, your physicians, social workers, or other people that you work with that are bringing complaints forward to us um, in both instances in, in, in this fiscal year, it's been physicians bringing things forward. So what are people complaining about? In the act, there are five categories of conduct deserving of sanction. The first is professional misconduct. So this is stuff you do during your work day that is inappropriate. This could be diverting narcotics. It could be being rude to your clients. It could be sleeping on shift. It could be anything like that that happens during your work life at work professional incompetence. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but interesting enough, um, most of the complaints we're getting from the public um, either fall into um, conduct and becoming, which we'll chat about, or professional misconduct. And the misconduct, uh, or sorry, and the being distracted by my phone, which keeps ringing. Um, professional incompetence. This professional incompetence piece, the public is watching and they are bringing things forward. Sometimes they are things that they have taken to the employer and complained about and maybe not gotten um, the kind of response they wanted from the employer. So then they've come to us. But uh, so that incompetence piece is, is always prominent. Conduct unbecoming is things you do in your personal life or outside of the workplace that can bring the reputation of the profession into disrepute. So this can be things like um, theft under criminal convictions, under the criminal code. Um, we've had things like possession of pornography fall into this category. We've had stalking, harassment. We've had um, prescription tampering if you're doing it outside of the workplace things like that would fall into this category. Um, this can also include a big bucket of things, including your activity on social media, which we'll have further discussion about. Um, incapacity or unfit to practice, um, that would be either illness um, or illness related to addictions is the biggest component of that. But sometimes we do get folks who have um, cognitive impairment 
um, either due to illness or injury that fall into that category. And the big bucket, and this is sort of interesting that it's set out as a separate category in the act is breach of the act, which includes breach of the code of ethics. So as you can imagine, oftentimes when we're looking at a complaint, it's professional misconduct, but it's also a breach of the code of ethics. So that's why um, you'll see more um, ticks on this screen than actual numbers of complaints, because sometimes a complaint falls into more than one bucket, and oftentimes they fall into two or three buckets. So, And then this is just the total number of complaints that we received. So like I said, these are the five buckets. This is a really busy screen, um, but these are the five buckets that are listed in the act, and these are things that could fall under those categories. So uh, medication administration, um, mistreatment of patients, breach of confidentiality, abandoning your shift would be misconduct. Conduct and becoming could include criminal charges, text communication, social media posts. Professional incompetence would include issues with clinical skills, um, uh, prioritization or critical thinking, breaching the act, the code or regulation would be practicing without a license, failing to report under the duty to report, code of ethics violations, failures to remit your CCP, all those sort of procedural things, and then incapacity or unfitness would be illness, which includes addictions. So now for the fun part. Number 10 on my top 10 list, and actually I'm going to be honest and transparent and tell you that we actually didn't have any complaints in the last fiscal year related to people failing to remit their CCP, and that's because we moved to the new um, continuing competency program. But if you fail, I know now with the new program, if you fail to remit, you don't have anything in your portal for CCP, you get stopped at your renewal. There is the chance, though, that things you put in your portal might not be appropriate or truly uh, worthy of being considered continuing education. So um, in the past, we had people who completely got you know, when we did the audit and we sent out letters saying, yes, you've checked the box that you did all your continuing competency. Now we'd like you to remit the paper, the old paperwork, send it in, show us what you've actually done and, and prove to us that you've done reasonable continuing competency education. Um, we have people that would ignore those letters. And this is truly avoidable. Um, my advice to you is always remit something put something in, do something. If for some reason you cannot get that stuff into the portal or you can't get the education done, call. Call our practice people. Call me because if we appreciate that sometimes things happen, but if you just do nothing, you're going to end up with an allegation for failing to remit. So Continuing competency, word of advice, this is probably the easy, most easily avoidable um, allegation that could ever fall in your lap. Um, just do it. It's pretty simple. And if you have problems or challenges, either getting it done or getting it submitted, reach out to us first, because we'll work with you to help you to get it done or get it inputted or, or what needs to happen. But if you don't reach out to us, we just think you're ignoring us and it'll end up being an allegation. 
And the problem with getting an allegation like this is when you, whenever you go to register in another jurisdiction, like if you decide to move and you have to apply for licensure in another jurisdiction, or you're going to go do a locum in another jurisdiction, you now have to check off that box that you've been under review or you've had an allegation against you. And that creates a bit of a hurdle. So avoid that. Abuse of authority. So this is a bit of a term I use to collectively describe a couple of situations we had where people did things that they probably ought to have known were not appropriate. Like things like jump the queue and, and book appointments for family members or loved ones. Um, access, you know, a record that you shouldn't have access for, from a family member who needed a copy of something. So you accessed it. Um, we had a couple of situations where people just, you know, didn't follow the standards and the processes and the system that they were supposed to and gave themselves an advantage in a way that other non-healthcare providers would avail of. And so Again, my word of advice and the point of this picture is if it feels like you're standing out, I know this says if it doesn't feel right, go left. Even if everybody else is doing it, because that's one of the responses we got. My God, everybody does this where I work. If it feels right, go left. If it doesn't feel right, go left. I mean, even if everybody else is going right, you know in your gut, trust your instincts, trust your intuition. Do the right thing. Don't just be a caribou and follow the crowd when you know that, ugh, you know what, if my manager knew I was doing this, they'd not be happy. Don't do it. Uh, and I get that sometimes a temptation is great, but trust your gut. Outright fraud. Um, most common example of this is prescription tampering. We've had that happen. Um, We've had people fraudulently um, create documents to obtain licensure, not necessarily with us. Um, I'm sure you've all heard about the media situation where there was an individual who held herself out to be a registered nurse that was not actually an RN. She was trained as an LPN. Um, so that didn't in directly involve us and it didn't, it's not captured in one of those allegations of the 41 complaints we got because the individual never actually um, applied for licensure with us. Um, however, obviously fraudulently using the name of another registered nurse in the province to obtain employment um, and clearly holding herself out to be someone that she wasn't. So um this can also include on your renewal, those boxes and the attestations that you have to check. I know it's really tempting just to go, no, 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 because I'm in a hurry and I just got to get through this and I've got to get back to work or, or, you know, I've got a million things on my plate. Read those attestations closely because we've also had people who have checked those boxes saying, no, I'm not under review investigation or otherwise in another province. And then we all of a sudden get notification that in fact, they are subject to investigation in another province and they were at the time they checked the box. So now that's an allegation from us. So just be very careful about 
when you're doing your renewal, making sure that you're being completely 100% transparent. Just because you have to check that box, um, you know, a box in those attestations in a way that you think, oh, they're not going to want to see that answer. That doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to be able to renew. It just is a stopgap so that we can investigate it, look at it, and make sure it's safe to proceed. So better that than us finding out you lied on your renewal and then it becomes a definite problem. And if you have questions before you renew about any of that, Again, my advice is call the registration department and have those conversations because your best defense to all of these things is being informed. And if you make sure that you have the information you need before you act, then you're in good stead. And even if you call and you get information and you act on that information, if for some reason that information was wrong, you at least can say, I asked the question, I was told this information, I acted upon that. And that's far better than going, I don't want to know, I'm just going to close my eyes, check no and hope for the best. That's never a good way to proceed. Number seven, those agreements I talked about, people breaching agreements. So this is oftentimes folks who enter into those remediation agreements and agree to do some education. They agree to do potentially maybe drug and alcohol screening if they, if they have an addiction illness underlying their um, complaint and then don't follow through. And one might think these would be the people who have the most complicated agreements. Not so. We've had a few people who who have failed to do some pretty simple things um, that have ended up with a second allegation. And let me tell you, those agreements have some deadlines in them. They say, you know, within a month, you're going to do this. Within two months, you're going to do something else. I will give you a reminder if it's not done. I will follow up with you and say, hey, you know, this is past due. Uh, are you going to get this completed? And it's only when you ignore me and don't respond that I have no choice but then to file an allegation for failing to respond to your regulator and, and failing to adhere to the terms of your alternative dispute resolution agreement. So again, this is really avoidable. Um, so if, and, and if you have a complaint against you and we enter into an ADR, if you fail to complete that ADR, you will never be offered another ADR and you will be stuck, you know, at the mercy of a disciplinary panel. So it's really in everybody's best interest. And again, I, I know I'm talking about this from a disciplinary lens, but the more important piece is that agreement is meant to remediate your practice and bring you up to a level of practice that is acceptable to meet the standards. And if you're not doing the remediation, then the corollary is, is that your practice doesn't meet standards. And you do not want to risk your livelihood and your license and your ability to be a nurse because you didn't follow through on a couple of assignments or a written documentation exercise or viewing of a video that we asked you to do. I mean, you've put a lot of work into your education and your careers. Don't throw it away because you didn't watch a video or write a reflective paper. Number six, unauthorized practice. Briefly touched on this. This is where people practice without a license. Sometimes this is fraudulent, like our friend that was in the news um, around Christmas, January time. Sometimes this is folks that 
forget to renew at annual renewal. Um, you know, they just miss the deadline. Um, but most of the time, this is someone who's gone off on leave. This is someone who's gone off on a mat leave or an extended sick leave. And they went off on leave in January. They came back in September. Their renewal period was in between there. They didn't renew because all their reminders go to their work email that they haven't looked at for nine months. And they call HR and they say, hey, I'm ready to come back to work in September. And HR gets all the paperwork done and they say, oh, you know, we're starting to do some of the reorientation and whatever online. Here's all the information you need. Go on board and do your WMIS, do all this stuff. And you're now getting paid by your employer to do some of these things at home and may even then finish all of that, show up to the workplace to do your first buddy shift at, upon return and realize you actually don't have a, a current license. And this used to hold a fine of $100 a day for everyday work. And we've had people historically that have thousands of dollars in fines that accrue because of practicing without a license. Um, we have worked to curtail that and cap the fine. And it's capped at, I think it's three times the annual renewal rate. for. So it's capped at about $1,500 right now. So it's much better than it used to be because it was unlimited in the past. Um, because again, I'm not looking to penalize people. I just want to make sure you're practicing in the workplace, you're competent, and you're safe. And part of being safe is making sure you have your license and you have your liability insurance that's attached to it. So um, please, 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 whatever you do, nursing practice is anything you do as a nurse related to work. So that includes if you're doing um, like orientation at home, doing WMIS at home, doing CPR um, or first aid or something on, before you go back to work. All of these things are part of your practice and part of your job. And so please make sure that whatever you do, if you go off on a leave and you switch to a non-practicing license, make sure you switch it back to practicing before you go back to work. If you go off on sick leave and miss renewal, make sure you have that renewed license in place before you start working. Fitness to practice, unfortunately, this is now in the top five of the things I see. Um, and no kidding, I mean, we all know that the environment has been challenging. Um, COVID was very challenging for healthcare providers. And there's a lot of, you know, news in the media about shortages, about working conditions, all kinds of things. Um, it's very stressful. What we do is never easy. And this is probably a challenging, more challenging time than previous in the workplace. So we do have a number of people who are either self-reporting, we have a few, or oftentimes what happens is something happens in the workplace. There's a performance issue. Then that gets reported to us. Then there's a disclosure of an addiction or illness that underlines the performance issue. Um, and then we get involved. Um, we really want to support registrants to overcome these kinds of challenges and return to practice. 
And we will work very diligently with people to support them and get them into a place where they're practicing safely, competently, and ethically. So if you or someone you know is struggling with a fitness to practice issue that they are trying to hide or keep undercover, please encourage them to come forth and self-report because we will work with people. And we have registrants that have been on monitoring agreements for years where they've had significant addiction challenges and they have been on screening programs once a month for a year, every other month for a year. And we have supported them and we have many that have successfully returned to practice and overcome these kinds of issues and challenges. So that's our goal. Um, so don't be afraid to come for it. Um, don't forget your employers also have EFAP and your HR team in your employment settings can help you with this. Um, we do unfortunately have some though of late. I've noticed we do have a number of the folks that are coming across my desk in this category are folks I've seen before. So they may have come to us. We've been through a remediation. They've been in a good place and practicing, um, but now I'm seeing a few people relapse. So those are unfortunate, maybe a sign of the times. But again, I encourage you to reach out and seek assistance. Um, and if you self-report before you know a performance issue, um, it, it just makes it a little bit easier for us to help and, and move forward in a positive way. Number four, the bane of my existence is social media. Um, it seems like the world wants to put everything they do on social media. And I have social media. Um, I, you know, we're not saying that you can't be on social media. But I think the lesson here is, first of all, know your employer's policy related to this know what it says, read it. It's cl probably clearly going to say, uh-uh, no videos, no pictures from the workplace. That's usually a pretty mainstay component of, of employer policy. It may be even more robust than that. So know your employer policy because that's the first part. Like I said, be informed. The second piece of this is be smart. Think before you post. Um, Clearly, I mean, we cannot tell you that as a nurse, you can never be on social media. If you have a side hustle of, you know, you're a baker and you do those fancy cakes and cookies and you want to do videos about, you know, your skills and your talents, by all means, post away. I would recommend that you're not wearing scrubs. I would recommend that you don't have your work ID tag or lanyard around your neck. I would recommend you don't identify yourself as a nurse. It's not relevant to what you're posting. Don't post it. Some things are pretty clear. That's pretty safe posting. There are some things that are pretty clear on the other end of the spectrum. Taking videos during the workplace, taking photos of your patients. And again, this was all in the media. We, we all heard about this instance in our province. Um, pictures of residents, pictures of patients um, of any kind being posted to social media without any consent is completely um, inappropriate. 
there is a gray area in this too. And Saskatchewan took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, so, and I, you may or may not be aware, there was a registered nurse in Saskatchewan whose family member was receiving care in a long-term care facility. And she was quite vocal about her opinion about the care that her loved one received on social media. And it went to the Supreme Court. I do not want to get into a battle of the right to free speech. Um, and I don't think you do either. Um, because going to the Supreme Court is uh, is very stressful and very costly. Um, and so if you're getting close to that gray area, if you have an opinion about something healthcare related, I would seek advice before you post to social media. You know, be very careful about identifying yourself as a registered nurse on social media. Be very careful about wearing your work attire, your name tags and lanyards while you're posting personal things to social media. This one, like I said, there's some very obvious holes at the end of the spectrum, but there's a very big gray area in the middle and it's ever changing based on law and jurisprudence. So my advice to you, again, know your employer policy, be informed, be careful, be thoughtful. Um, unprofessional communication. Oddly enough, this has creeped into the top three, uh, which is really kind of a new development. And again, maybe sign of the times. Um, I can't tell you how many complaints I have received in the last 12 months about unprofessional communication. Um, individuals who have stellar careers, lengthy careers, you know, individuals who otherwise are described as kind, mild-mannered, whatever, who are just coming unglued in the workplace and speaking inappropriate to colleagues, speaking inappropriate to patients and family members, speaking inappropriate to um, other healthcare professionals, or texting um, and again, this kind of overlaps with the social media piece, um, the unprofessional communication, you know, what you share in your texts, right? Like, again, know your employer's policy. A lot of employers do not allow you to communicate patient information via text to amongst your team, amongst your staff, amongst anybody, even if they would have a right to know that information, texting using your personal device is usually a no-no. Um, and we've had this challenge. When I worked in long-term care in another province, um, we had physicians that came into our long-term care on a regular basis. They were our core group of physicians and they would come in, see a client. And if we had a palliative care client per se, or um, let's say, um, they would actually say to the nursing, my LPNs and my healthcare aides, if there's a change in status, just text me and I'll, I'll pop back to the facility. And my team was texting the physician at the physician's request using their own personal phones. But that was against our policy. So even if someone's asked you to, and it seems like, yeah, it's information they're entitled to, they're a physician you need to know what the policy is. So don't be using your personal devices for anything work-related unless it's part of an expectation of your employer and they're aware and it's and you know it doesn't violate policy. Um, but part of this too is, um, you know, the EFAP piece. 
um, sometimes those texts that are going back and forth between colleagues are also people venting about what's going on in the workplace. Um, so just be careful, right? I mean, it's busy, it's stressful, and you know we all can lose our cool when all the you know the holes in the Swiss cheese align. But be mindful, take that moment, walk away, step away, think before you text, think before you speak. And you know what? By all means, if you do misstep and you say something and it's a little off base or it's you've come across as sounding angry or short, an apology will usually diffuse that whole thing. Um, so, you know, don't don't be scared to be humble either that if you have an exchange of words or you don't have the patience with someone that you think you should have go back and apologize because that's usually enough to make sure it doesn't end up in a complaint form on my desk. Competency from the employer's perspective. Um, you know, this is still the majority of the complaints I'm getting are competency related. And some of them, you know, I, I guess what concerns me about this category is I look at the last two or three years in healthcare and I look at, you know, um, particularly those folks that are new into the profession, their learning journey, their experience, their ability to have practicums um, in the way that you or I might have had them. Um, may very well have been disruptive. I mean, their their education in school may have been disrupted by COVID and they may have done distance learning. They may have missed complete um, clinical um, opportunities. They may have ended up doing things in clinical that you and I would never have contemplated doing um, and not necessarily got the same fulsome type experience that others before them have had. So, you know, and I'm not saying that these competency complaints necessarily are all coming from people who are new into the profession. They're not. The other thing we're seeing is folks that have had a longstanding career um, who move into areas maybe they're not as familiar with, um, who maybe cut corners, who maybe, yeah, I, who aren't staying current with practice. So, you know, this relates to everybody in the spectrum, whether you're a brand new nurse or someone who's contemplating retirement in your near future. It is your responsibility to know your gaps and to know what skills and abilities you have and what skills and abilities you lack. And it's your responsibility to make sure that you practice within your, your scope and your competency. And so, um, Again, this is about know what's expected, know where you are, do that self-assessment. If you, and this is tough, right? Like I used to sell the time, say, even when we had new grads leaving acute care when they done practicums, it's, it's almost more important to know what you don't know as it is to know what you do know, because we know what you know. It's sometimes tough to say, hey, you know what? I haven't done this skill or I haven't encountered this situation for a couple of years and I'm a little rusty, I should know this. It's hard in those situations to go to a colleague and say, hey, can I bend your ear a bit? Can you help me out? Um, but you need to do that because if you wing it and you're doing it wrong, not only are you creating a patient safety concern, you're acting incompetently. So this still is the number 
and you're going to see this, it's number one and number two, because it's so significant. But um, so keep up to date on that continuing competency, make sure you avail yourself. And if you're not sure, go to the policy. I mean, policy guides your practice in the workplace, go to your standards practice, know those things. And though that should help you. And when you have questions about practice, call our practice advisors. They're here for you to support you. So if you have a question, if you're not sure, if something's going on in your workplace that doesn't seem quite right, or you're not sure if that's within your scope or your um, capability, then you, you know, make that call and get that support. And as I said, competency is still also number one. But in this instance, I pulled it separately aside because I really want to hone in on that bit we talked about sooner the public is really watching and um and that's a good thing i mean we want the public to be engaged in their care we want the public to be engaged in the healthcare system we want the public to hold us accountable to meet the standards of practice and practice safely competently and ethically we want that engagement that's a good thing but just be mindful of it because it seems to be shifting because we didn't, oftentimes public might be engaged, but maybe disinclined to complain or bring a matter forward. That seems to be changing. We are getting more and more engagement in this office with complaints that are coming direct from the public. Um, and like I say, sometimes they are the folks that have already complained to the employer and the employer's done an investigation. And maybe the employer hasn't come up with the finding that you know, satisfied the complainant public member. And so they're thinking, well, the employer is just covering its butt and they don't want to admit any liability because they're going to be at fault. So I'm going to come now to the college and complain about the individual nurse. And, and that does sometimes happen. Um, and oftentimes when we have complaints like that, our result aligns with that of the employer, which is also probably a good thing, means everybody's being transparent and thorough and everybody's doing their job and coming up with the same result. Um, but I think it's just one of those things that, like I say, being mindful, take the time, explain things to people, answer questions, you know, find the patience even when you don't. And I know those aren't always easy things to do in a, in a busy, stressful environment. But these are the things that are going to um, appeal to the public and avoid some of those concerns that we get that are actually, you know, a misconception or a misunderstanding of something that happened or didn't happen. So like I said, um, it's a good thing. And I think we just need to be mindful that they're watching because they're interested and they have concern. And if you give them information, answer their questions, then that builds trust. And when you're transparent and build trust, then in the light, in all likelihood, people aren't going to feel the need to complain about something because you've given them an answer. You've been transparent with them. So, um, but that is number one, the competency piece. This has been a presentation of the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador.